our Bibles open to Matthew chapter 22, shall we? Matthew chapter 22. And if you are using one of the, the Burgundy Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 990. Well, um, we take weeks to walk through these passages, and in doing so, we're prone to forget that uh, the three parables that we looked at recently and the, the four questions that we're going to consider in the next four weeks uh, all happen in history on the very same day. Uh, this is the Tuesday before that first Good Friday when Jesus would die on the cross. And the religious leaders of Israel, out of anger and envy, are trying to get rid of Jesus. They want him dead. And now from verses 15 to 46, we have this series of debates with Jesus um, over four topics, four questions. And the first, taxation. How exciting, we think. Well, let's read Matthew 22, 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. Well, they brought him a denarius, and he asked them, whose image is this, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Let's pray together. Father, we read in your words, that when Josiah heard your word read, his heart responded and he tore his robes in repentance. But when his son Jehoiakim heard your word years later, his heart was hard and he tore up your word and burned it. Make us like the former today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, would you believe it? We are having another general election they come around more often than a World Cup nowadays. That's, there's something wrong with that, isn't there? Uh, one of the things I'm looking forward to, though, uh, over the next few weeks is seeing how politicians fare in these political interviews, these intense political interviews. Uh, and there's an art to it, apparently. I was reading an article by Andrew Marr uh, recently, the BBC journalist, who said, and he admits this, he says, we devise stratagems of attack we master outrageous bluntness, serpentine logic, in order to confuse, all to get that look of shock on the face of the politician. And he said, you know, the kind of look you see on your great aunt. Love that. Now, he said, at times I'm going to be nasty, at times I'll be smiley gentle, at times I'll be repetitive, but I will do anything to get the answer to the question that I've asked and to make sure that the politician does not answer the question with the answer that they wanted me 
to ask. Well, I think in this passage today in Matthew, Jesus faces his own little posse of Andrew Mars. They have their own strategy. In their minds, this political career, if you like, of Jesus, this reputation, even his life, depends on, it all hangs on what is just about to come out of his mouth. What will he do? What will Jesus do? Will he dodge the question? No, we see in this passage, he answers them straight and then actually elevates his answer and takes them to something far more important than the question. He says, far more important than the question, how much should we give to government, is the question, how much should you be giving to God? And that's a question for all of us today, just as it was for them back then. So it's Q&A for the next four weeks. So the, the first, the two points that we're looking at today are point one, verses 15 to 18, the question, and then point two, verses 19 to 22, the answer. First of all, the question then. In verse 16, we're introduced to those Andrew Mars, those conducting the interview. And it's really important to know two things about them as they approach Jesus with this question. First of all, they pretend to be something they're not. Uh, they put on a mask, in other words. Uh, what are they pretending to be? Uh, well, they're pretending to be united. Verse 16 says that the Pharisees had sent their disciples uh, to him, that is Jesus, along with the Herodians. What an unlikely coalition that is. This is equivalent to Jeremy Corbyn and Nigel Farage skipping hand in hand into Parliament saying, yes, I agree with you, kind sir. Like, it's just not ever, ever going to happen. They don't, these guys in here, Herodians, the Pharisees, disciples, they don't share the same views. They're at opposite ends of the political spectrum, really. Herodians support Roman rule and occupation. They gain from it. The Pharisees don't. They hate it with a passion. They don't hang out together. They don't even like each other. But here they are masquerading as some kind of interested pollsters. But underneath, don't miss it, they are political poachers. They cannot wait to lift up the dead carcass of Jesus Christ and say, ha, we've got you. But not only do they pretend to be united, they actually pretend to, to like Jesus. They pretend to appreciate him. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity and, and you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You see what they're saying? It, oh, it's just dripping with slime, isn't it? And here's the perfect example of those who are both hypocritical and two-faced, who say all the right things. And this is the dark irony in this. The dark irony and the sinfulness of the human heart in here, because Jesus is a man of integrity more than any other. Jesus does teach the truth more than any human mouth will ever utter. And Jesus is not swayed by people's opinions, not like every other person who has ever lived. And anyone else might have been suckered in. You know, <laughs> yes, yes, Mr. Marr. I really should stop using his name now, shouldn't I? Uh, yes, yes, you're right. You know, I, I'm a man of integrity. I do call a spade a spade, but not Jesus. He sees right through them. And in verse 18, rips the mask off and calls them out for their hypocrisy, addressing Jesus as if they really wanted an answer. All they wanted to do, as he said in verse 15, was entangle him in his own words. Now, before I move on, I do want to say, brothers and sisters, a secondary application in this would be, 
to say that we can watch out for people like that. We're thinking about what it means to ask people the question, how would you fix the world? Engaging in people in conversation on this. And it's not going to be any surprise to have us meet people who want to ask questions about our faith, but not really interested in our answer. More, they're more interested in finding out material that they can use to mock you or reject Jesus. There's no real intent. This is why, even as many of us were thinking about in our growth groups on Wednesday, we need to uh, preempt these approaches with prayer and ask God to unstop deaf ears and open blind eyes. These guys, this un unlikely coalition, are coming looking for reasons to hang Jesus. They put on a mask, but that's not all they do. They set out the trap, and the trap is a question about taxation. It's a brilliant trap, really. Uh, verse 16b, tell us then, Mr. Integrity, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, taxation is a big issue in any society. There's no question about it. It's remarkable just how often societal unrest kind of hinges on just how much a government decides to tax its people. So get it right and society's nice and settled, but get it wrong and the people are absolutely raging. You might have a revolution on your hands. Some will remember the poll tax riots in the 1980s when Margaret Thatcher introduced this new tax, uh, trialing it in Scotland before implementing it nationwide. And people in Scotland and nationwide actually were just utterly spitting in anger. And, you know, city centre streets were lit up by furious rioters. People actually just point blank refused to pay this tax. Uh, but they paid the price for it though. I mean, how many people in your street uh, had their homes raided by bailiffs? How many people had their TVs and their hi-fis carried out to pay the debt? Some of you are probably thinking, what's a hi-fi? <laughs> Is it like Wi-Fi? No, it's not. It's a bit different. This poll tax, needless to say, was a political disaster, okay, hated by the people. But what I want to say is take that level of feeling that you or someone you know might have had about that tax and ramp it up big time because it's nothing compared to the hatred that the Jewish people had for this poll tax, this imperial tax. It was detestable. It wasn't the amount charged that made people mad. I mean, every adult paid just one denarius once a year. That's equivalent to a day's wage for a, a laborer back then. So it wasn't the amount charged, it was the coin itself. It was what it represented that was hated. You see, every denarius in itself was a symbol of their Roman subjugation. They were ruled, overruled. And every Israelite knew that this was the coin that paid for the troops that occupied their homeland, among other things. But the thing that made this coin a serious offense to the Jewish faith was what was imprinted on it. It was blasphemous, really. You see, on the one side, it bore the image of Caesar's head encircled by the inscription, Caesar Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. So king and son of God is basically what it says. And to this monotheistic people whose God was the one true God, whose divine son was the Messiah, the one that they were looking for, the one that they were waiting for, this coin was an absolute affront to their religious views 
an affront to all the things that they claimed to love and a reminder that they were under the heel of Rome and that's why Rome enjoyed enforcing it. And this is the trap they set. Imperial tax. Pay it, don't pay it. And the trap is, I mean, this coalition think we have got him this time. If Jesus says, don't pay, the Herodians there, they're going to snap the handcuffs on him and string him up like they've done a ton of other insurrectionists in the past. But if Jesus says, pay, then the Pharisees have got him. They can discredit him before the entire nation and quash all the hype among the people for this wannabe Messiah. Either way, Jesus is sunk. So you see the tangle? They're forcing him to choose. It's a brilliant question. But his reply is even more brilliant. Look with me at the answer. What does he say? Before he answers directly, he says, he basically says, I can see your trap. I can see that you have just set it right in front of me, but I see right through you. And then comes the main point of his answer. And it comes in two parts. He says, first of all, uh, give to Caesar, basically, whatever, whatever bears his image. See it in verse 19? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So he wants the visual aid. And they brought him a denarius. And I imagine him holding it up and he asked them, whose image is this? And, and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. So he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Now, the use of this coin as a visual aid is actually a mark of genius. In those days, the image on the coin didn't just mean that the person on the front promised to pay you or guarantee that you would get the value of the coin that you were holding. It meant that the person imaged owned the coin. So this coin was actually minted from Caesar's own wealth. It did belong to him. And for that reason, Jesus contentedly says, pay the tax. Pay him his dues. To use the traditional words, pay him your tribute. Now, two quick things about this on dominion and on governments. Because this passage and this statement by Jesus is a profound foundation to much of New Testament teaching on how we live under a government that is not allied directly to the Lord God. And well, that's all of them. On dominion, Jesus isn't saying this because the coin belongs to Caesar, that it somehow doesn't belong to God. He's just saying, okay, Caesar has this sphere here, and he will go on to say, but let's not make any mistake. God's sphere is overruling. It's everywhere. It's, his is limited. God's is universal. But he is saying on the subject of how Christians live in Christ's kingdom under the government or rule of a nation who set their own laws that are not fueled by, informed by, or in keeping with the Bible, Jesus endorses submission to their authority. You see that? We are to live as civilized people, recognizing that those in such positions are put there by God. And Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 would be passages that I would encourage you to go and read later that flesh out, give to Caesar what is Caesar's more than I have time for just now. But actually, that's not the main point here. You see, what Jesus is doing when he picks the coin and picks on the image is he's zeroing in on that. And he says, give to Caesar whatever bears his image. 
Okay, give to Caesar whatever bears his image. And with that, the Herodians would have been putting the handcuffs away and the lynch rope away. The Jews, however, at this point, would have been momentarily fizzing until Jesus said, give to God what is God's. He says, give God, give to Caesar whatever bears his image and give to God whatever bears his what bears God's image, brothers and sisters? We do. People. Human beings. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. I wonder if you've heard of this before. You want to know the reason why Christians love the way they do without uh, preference for certain people of certain classes or races or anything like that? Why do we love people? Why do we care about matters in the public sphere as much as the gospel going out? Well, it's because of this. Human beings are made in the image of God. If you go to page one in your Bible, like we did at this, earlier on in our service, the per first person you meet is God. God is the one who is not, God is the one who is the king, the true king, not Caesar, not any other human king, he's the one who has authority over all creation. He speaks and creation obeys. He defines what's good. He defines what's not good. He alone is the supreme being, the supreme king. And surprisingly, though, at the pinnacle of all of God's creative work, he makes human beings and calls all of them the image of God. Let us make mankind in our image, he says. And he... What does he do with them? Gives them authority to rule. It's the first thing he does with them. How? Well, he tells us in Genesis 1 and 2, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over it. Rule over it. In other words, God is the supreme king, but I'm creating human beings made in my image to be the vice regents, the presidents and prime ministers. Those who will govern over this world to look after it. And how are we supposed to rule? Well, the picture we get in Genesis is in gardening. Yes, gardening. Uh, I don't know about you what gardening means for you, but gardening for me means weed all. Um, it pretty much means just killing the weeds and turning over the muck until next year. It's not very good. Some of you are much better and have pretty gardens, I'm sure. But it starts off in Genesis 1-2 with gardening. People rule the earth by cultivating it, harnessing all of the earth's potential, making something new out of it, like growing food, and then that, you know, feeding your family, and then growing your family out of it, and then, like, growing more families, making more little gardeners, and who then cultivate more from the earth, and eventually those people form into groups, not just families, but villages and towns, and not just towns, but then cities, and then the world, and people rule the earth by cultivating it and harnessing it. And ruling then in God's eyes is really the day-to-day -day acts of our creativity. It's of, it's the day-to-day -day work of if humanity's divinely given task carried out under God's supreme government, that's what we are made to be. That's what we are made to do. And you might say, well, that sounds absolutely wonderful, but we don't always make the best out of it, do we? I mean, we may, we've made lots of good stuff, but we've also, as human beings, done lots of bad stuff. And that's true. The Bible addresses this in Genesis as well. I mean, in Genesis, God gives these human beings a choice. 
about how they're going to rule. And he says they can either use their authority for the benefit of others, which is God's definition of what his rule looks like, his definition of, of what good is, or they can turn away and define good and evil themselves and use their authority for their own advantage. And that is exactly what we see Adam and Eve do in Genesis chapter 3. They operate on their own terms according to their own definitions of what is good and what is bad. And this, friend, is what the Bible calls sin. And sin breaks or mars the image of God in us. Not completely, but we don't serve one another and bring the best out of one another and this world as we ought. And this is why human beings at an individual or even at a collective level can pull off some amazing things, but just as often, personally and collectively, make a real hash of life in this world. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of the grand storyline of the entire Bible is that we are not stuck as mediocre rulers making an absolute mess of things. Because the Bible teaches that the reversal of that bad choice in chapter 3 of Genesis, where the ruining of our image came about, that reversal of that took place when Jesus, the Son of God, became a man. He ruled by serving. He loved not just his friends, but his enemies. He obeyed God's good and perfect will entirely and served others as a, in order to define his rule. I have not come to be served, but to serve, he said. Now, that is not a typical way to rule. And you might think, that's not the way that I would rule. I would expect to be served if I was in charge. But he did more than that, though. He confronted humanity's rebellion personally and faced the consequences of our rebellion and our poor governance of self and creation himself as he died upon the cross to take away our sin. And that's why when his followers look to his death and his resurrection, they not only see forgiveness of sins, but they see a whole new future opening up for all humanity, the reversal of the curse itself, if only for those who put their faith and trust in him and submit. Submit to his authority bring themselves once more away from their own self-rule and under his loving rule. And only Jesus can restore this broken image. Only Jesus provides us with the new way to be truly human. Only through Jesus are, we his, are his divine life and power ours, which means that our lives can start to change now, not just when the new heaven and new earth comes when he returns, but now he is reshaping us. He is remaking us. God painstakingly creates in us through faith in Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 4 says, the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we become people in whom God's image is being restored. That's that's how the story of the Bible even ends. 
that new heaven and new earth is depicted as a renewed world where God is on the throne and Christ is the king, but amazingly, the people who live with him are ruling the new creation. Humble, vice regents, happy in his love. It's beautiful. Now, if Caesar's image communicated Caesar's ownership of the coin, I want us to see today that God's image in us communicates his ownership of us. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, if you've never confessed your sinful rebellion before God, we need to understand this. Our rebellion is a sin. We are not autonomous. We will be called to give an account. And what we're called to do before that happens, in order to, as the Bible says, escape the wrath or the judgment to come, is repent of our sins and trust in Jesus. Ask him to forgive your rebellion. Ask him in faith to start reshaping you today because of what Christ has done on the cross. We'd love to talk to you about that afterwards. Maybe the person who brought you can explain a little bit more about this. There's a prayer team down the front. They'd be happy to pray with you and then point you in the direction of someone that you could chat to about this. Otherwise, there's a Christianity Explored coming up which walks through Mark's account of the life of Jesus in a few weeks' time. Uh, from the 18th of May to the 29th of June, it's a course that investigating the claims of Christianity and you'd be more than welcome to sign up for that. There's more information at the information desk in the foyer there. Please do have a look at that. But what about for us as Christians? Jesus' words, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, have a profound impact on us as well. Profound implications for our lives. And I wonder if you stop to consider what it means for our lives to give to God what is God's. Romans 14.8, after all, says that when we have put our faith and trust in Jesus, it says simply, we belong, there's the ownership, to the Lord. And the call of this passage for those of us who do trust in Christ is give him everything. What is it that, that belongs to God? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But certainly those who have been bought with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, you are not your own, says the apostle. You were bought at a price. We are the blood-bought people of God, freed from our rebellion, freed from our self-rule, and brought under his loving rule to live as we ought, in gracious, under his gracious care and in obedience to him. So the call for us as Christians from this passage is give him everything. Give him all you've got. Half-heartedness is not good when it comes to living out his image in us. Give him everything. Give him your love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. We're going to get to that in two or three weeks' time. It's in this chapter. Knowing that Christ calls us to give him all of our affection, give him all of our love, we can ask ourselves, what draws our affection away from him? 
What is it that competes for my love? Our hearts are very much the battleground for our faith, brothers and sisters. Too many things steal what belongs to God. It might be a love for another person, a relationship. It might be a deep longing for something that you don't quite have yet. And actually what you're willing to do is put aside some of the things that God calls on you to do in order to pursue that. And this is what idolatry is. And our hearts are brilliant at producing idol after idol. Give him, all your, give him all you've got. Give him all your love and give him all you've got in pursuit of godliness. In 2 Peter 1, we read, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as you live for him, under his loving rule, you will be kept from being ineffective and unproductive gardeners in his world. If we recognize the grace and the power that is ours through the gospel, by his Holy Spirit who lives in us, to work, to strive for holiness. So let's ask ourselves, what best describes the level of energy that we put into growing in Christ-likeness. What has that looked like for us even in the past seven days? Give him all your love. Give him all you've got in pursuit of godliness. Give him all you've got in service. In the church, of course, as Galatians 5 says, serve one another in love. The passages in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, which talk to us about the gifts that God has given us. In Ephesians 2, he, as our victor, has dispensed gifts as he's come in celebration. Gifts and abilities that his people have for themselves, not only to enjoy, but to employ, to put into practice for the building up of the church and for communicating through our life together the love of God for our edification and so that other people can come to know him too. So let's ask ourselves, what stops us from using the gifts that God has given us in his church? No one in this church, as 1 Corinthians 12 says, can say, I'm not needed. No one in this church can turn around to another and say, you're not needed. 1 Corinthians 12 demonstrates that very clearly. What prevents us? Well, it might be something organizational. We'd love to know about that. But it might be something that's in our hearts. It might not just be that, well, somebody else is doing four other jobs. One of them I could do. It could just be, do you know what? I'm just a consumer and I'm quite happy taking Give him all you've got in terms of your love. Give him all you've got in pursuit of godliness. And give him all you've got in service. And give him all you've got in mission. Let's not forget what it means for Christ to be the king over all. Let's not forget the call that comes to us 
as an outflow or an overflow of his authority. All authority in heaven and earth, on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And we ask ourselves then, what is it that makes us think that we can be half-hearted in giving ourselves to making disciples of all nations? Half-hearted in our mission, in reaching out to our friends, family members, people who walk by out there. What is it that makes us think that we can be half-hearted and lackadaisical with what we do organizationally as a church family in terms of mission? There are too many lives being lost for want of the news that we keep to ourselves. And this is the challenge of Jesus' words. Who would have thought, give to God what is God's, could contain so much, right? And finally, one Corinthians 10 says I've basically just walked you through love grow serve go right you got that that's what we're called to be as disciples as those who follow Jesus as those who are made in his image as those whom God is shaping and forming bit by bit into the likeness of his son and bringing people in all the while we're doing that And I'm reminded in closing of 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, not just in these four areas, but whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray, as this passage has taught us, that you would help us to understand what it means to be made in your image. And to understand what Jesus has done to restore that broken image in us when he died on the cross for our sin and raised to new life, bringing new hope to all who put their trust in him. I pray that you would help us um, live as uh, aliens and strangers in our land with real civility and humility seeking the goods of the city and the places in which we live, that we would live as patient, humble, godly people, prayerful for our government, but above all, that you would make us those who help people out there see what it means to be made in the image of God, to talk of your ownership over them, and to call them to come back to you, to come to you in faith and repentance. And I pray that for us, that we would love you more, serve you and your church in ways that honor the gifts that you have given us, that we would grow in the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would tell other people about him. And we do it for your glory and ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.